0: Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Scottish author Graham McRae Burnett talking about his new book, Case Study, with literary journalist Jane Sullivan. Graham McRae Burnett was shortlisted for the Booker Prize for his book, His Bloody Project. His latest work, Case Study, is a game of cat and mouse between therapist and patient between truth and deception, and between author and reader. It is a novel seething with secrets, and teasing questions about the nature of identity itself. It's an enthralling, playful, and layered depiction of 1960s society, and the radical psychiatry propounded by R.D. Lang. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Bookseller, Mario Madison.
1: On behalf of Readings and Text Publishing, I'm really thrilled to well, have you all in the same space, but more importantly, to welcome you to what's sure to be, I think, a really fantastic conversation between Graham and Craig Burnett on his new novel, Case Study, with Jane Sullivan, literary journalist. On behalf of Text and of readings, and of myself, I would like to acknowledge that tonight I am joining you. I join you from the land of the peoples of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and to come, and to the elders of all Indigenous lands across this country, and indeed, anywhere. I will now turn you over into the steady hands of uh, Jane Sullivan. Jane is an author and a literary journalist, she is a books columnist and reviewer for the City Morning Herald and The Age. She's written two novels and most recently her biblio memoir, Storytime, for which we had a wonderful discussion at Readings Carlton in person back in the uh, before times. <laughs> but I will pass you over now to Jane to uh, introduce
2: Graham and to get this fantastic conversation rolling. Thank you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about a novel I read a few years ago called His Bloody Project. Uh, It completely blew me away. It's a very twisty, macabre story about a horrible crime in the Scottish Highlands. Some of you may have read it, and where you're never quite sure what happened and why until the very end. And then it got shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And suddenly everyone was talking about this man, Graham McRae Burnett, who'd written the story. And particularly when the book managed to outsell every other book on the book a shortlist. So who is Graham? Well, he's a Scottish writer, he was born in Kilmarnock and the setting for his bloody project is a small hamlet he knows well. He now lives in Glasgow where he's joining us today. And a little bit later than when I read his bloody project, I saw Graham in person from a distance at the Adelaide Writers Week in the days when we allowed to go out and and travel and see people. And he was reading James Bruce's Thompson's essay on the degenerate criminal type. And those of you who've read his bloody project may recall that James Bruce Thompson is both a real criminologist and a fictional character in the book. Anyway, his essay on the degenerate criminal type had everyone in hysterics. It was so funny. And then I remember he said, wait till you get to the testicles.
3: My favourite line.
2: So now we're going to talk this evening about Case Study, his fourth novel, and it isn't quite so macabre, I must say, but it's dark and it's funny and it's just as twisty and it's a brilliant page-turner. And I agree very much with The Guardian reviewer who said it is entertaining and mindfully engrossing in equal measure, and I put the emphasis on that word mindfully because it's about minds. So Graham, I'm going to ask you to kick off by telling us a little bit about the book, and then doing a short reading, and then we'll pick it up from there, if you may.
3: Thanks very much for such a lovely introduction, then Jane. Good evening to everybody um, in Melbourne or wherever you're watching from. Uh, it's quite sort of it's quite odd, you know, being here in the morning with my morning coffee. I've just had my my grapefruit. And I'm trying to be healthy. Um, and you're all there in the evening enjoying a glass of wine. Um, but it's brilliant. And, you know, just it's always, I have such a great relationship with text publishing in Australia. And it's a real thrill, thrill for them to publish my work. And it's a thrill to be doing this event as well. So the book, Case Study, this, I, I don't have an Australian copy to wave yet. But this is the, but I, lo- I, I love the fact that both without, as far as I know, without planning, both the, these quite different covers, but they contain uh, similar elements of this mm. this tear and this layer um, being revealed underneath. And I think that was is kind of appropriate to the book because it's a book in which there is a surface and there are things going on underneath. So the book is set in London in 1965 and concerns a young woman whose name we never learn. And she believes that this radical psychotherapist called Collins Braithwaite um, has driven her sister Veronica to suicide. So in order to kind of investigate this, uh, she presents herself as a client to Collins Braithwaite and in order, she has to disguise her identity. So she presents herself as a persona, which she names uh, Rebecca Smith with a Y. And the book is told in the format of, I'm sure we'll come back to this, Jane, uh, somewhat similarly to His Bloody Project. The book is in the form of uh, five notebooks, mainly, which have been very fortunately sent to me anonymously. Um, And I'm going to read uh, the opening of the first of these notebooks by this young, young woman. I've decided to write down everything that happens because I feel, I suppose... I may be putting myself in danger, and if proved to be right, a rare occurrence admittedly, this notebook might serve as some kind of evidence. Regrettably, as will become clear, I have little talent for composition. As I read over my previous sentence, I do rather cringe, but if I dilly-dally over style, I fear I will never get anywhere. Miss Lyle, my English mistress, used to chide me for trying to cram too many thoughts into a single sentence. This, she said, was the sign of a disorderly mind. You must first decide what it is you wish to say, then express it in the plainest terms. That was her mantra, and though it is doubtless a good one, I can see that I have already failed. I have said that I may be putting myself in danger, but there I go, off on an irrelevant digression. Rather than beginning again, however, I shall press on. What matters here is substance rather than style. That these pages constitute a record of what is to occur. It may be that were my narrative too polished, it might lack credibility. That somehow the ring of truth lies in infelicity. In any case, I cannot follow Miss Lyle's advice, as I do not yet know what it is I wish to say. However. Of anyone unfortunate enough to find themselves reading this, I will endeavour to be clear, to express myself in the plainest terms. In this spirit, I shall begin by stating the facts. The danger to which I have alluded comes in the person of Collins Braithwaite. You will have heard him described in the press as Britain's most dangerous man. This, on account of his ideas about psychiatry, It is my belief, however, that it is not merely his ideas that are dangerous. I am convinced, you see, that Dr Braithwaite killed my sister Veronica. I do not mean that he murdered her in the normal sense of the word, but that he is, nonetheless, as responsible for her death as if he had strangled her with his bare hands. Two years ago, Veronica threw herself from the overpass at Bridge Approach in Camden and was killed by the 445 to High Barnet. You could hardly imagine a person less likely to commit such an act. She was 26 years old, and passably attractive, been consulting Dr Braithwaite for some weeks. This, I know from his own account,
2: Thank you, Graham. That that gives us a, a, a wonderful glimpse into your main unnamed character and uh, so it gives us some idea of her character, although we'll have to be prepared for a few surprises as we read on. I have a confession to make to you. I did actually Google Collins Braithwaite just to check if he was real or not.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, a lot of people will Google Collins Braithwaite. And uh, I'm curious to, I mean, normally you're a literary journalist, do you Google characters?
2: If I suspect they're real, and um, sometimes they are, but of course. You can't always expect a character in a novel to be the same as as the real person. And I I mean, I've done that in my own fiction. I've used real people in in stories and um, there's always that gap between the fiction and and the real person. The reason why, of course, I looked up Collins Braithwaite is because you do have another psychiatrist in the book, R.D. Lang, who was very famous in the 60s. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about him and how he ties up with Collins Braithwaite.
3: Yeah, well, as you say, Colin Spraceway, he's very rad- he's very radical ideas about psychiatry. And to some extent, he was inspired by the Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang, Ronnie Lang, um, who is, sort of, is quite well known, but I, I can't tend to forget. People don't necessarily know who uh, R.D. Lang was. Um, he was born in Glasgow to a sort of lower middle class family in 1928. You know, qualified as a doctor and as a, as a psychiatrist. And in the late 50s, he wrote a book called The Divided Self, um, which a few years later became a real sensation. And it's a book in which he, to some extent, begins to deconstruct the power relationship between the therapist and the patient and the assumption that the, the patient is, is insane and subjective and the therapist is sane and objective. Um, And the the very important idea in The Divide itself is this concept of presenting false persona to the world. And I I think this is quite, sometimes it can sound like quite a weird idea, but I think we all do this as we grow up and develop. We behave differently when we go to school and meet our friends. And then we do when when we're at home with our parents, you know, and, you know, then, I mean, certainly when I was growing up, you know, I found that, I find it quite traumatic for my parents to be in the same room as my friends because I didn't know which person I was being at that time. You know, so this idea of presenting different faces to the world, I think it's quite commonplace. I think for Lang, it becomes problematic when these, in his terms, false persona begin to take over what he would see as the true self. I find all this stuff absolutely fascinating because I I very much relate to it as a person. I don't read Lang or talk about Lang because I want to endorse his views. I I read Lang personally as a lay person because he increases my understanding of how I exist in the world, you know. So uh, Lang uh, Lang became this incredibly massive figure in the sort of counterculture of the 60s. Um, You know, Lang was this huge figure and, you know, Sean Connery and, Edna O'Brien once sought out, uh, went to see him as a psychiatrist, um, but she said he was much more mad than she was, so <laughs> it said that didn't work out. But Braithwaite becomes his rival, and he Braithwaite writes a book called Kill Yourself, Three Words, um, which is Braithwaite's own riposte to R.D. Lang's book, The Divide Self. So there's a kind of rivalry between these two characters. It's a very much a sort of subplot in the book. Lang hates Braithwaite because Braithwaite is being more radical than he is. He's kind of stealing his thunder as the enfant terrible of the of the sort of psychiatric uh, counterculture. And uh, you know, Braithwaite is very larger than life figure, uh, somewhat like Lang and like in common with many of the sort of angry young men of the period. Uh, Braithwaite comes from the northern English town of Darlington, an industrial town from a working class background. He's a grammar school boy, he ends up in Oxford, but he's very charismatic, a, a bully, somewhat monstrous figure. What did you make of him, Jane?
2: I thought he was jaw-droppingly, fascinatingly, hilariously awful. Well, I like that description. I thought you must have had yeah. great fun writing him too.
3: I, did, I kind of did. I did have fun writing him because I think it is fun to write a character who is somewhat outrageous, but then there, sometimes you write things that they made me feel uncomfortable to write them.
2: He'd never get away with it nowadays, would he? One thing, he's a horrible, um, you know, he sexually harasses his female patients. and Obviously, he has this magnetism which makes him get away with anything. But I think it's also something about the 60s period. You could get away with that sort of stuff then, and you couldn't
3: now, do you reckon? I'm just a youngster. People who have read the book, um, Mm. women who have read the book, uh, who were around at the time, do recognise the behaviour, the sort Mm. of bullying, sexual harassment. Maybe you're putting it quite mildly, but I like to do my research. You know, I think when you read accounts of how, you know, the so-called sexual liberation of the 60s was... To some extent, sexual liberation for men. You know, I don't. I don't like to generalize too much about these things. But sometimes women feeling that they had to go along with things, or unless, or they would be regarded as being, you know, a square.
2: I think women of my generation and a bit older, they they went through that. Yeah, I think that's yeah. true.
3: I, I'd like to think that the way I depict Collins' raceway is kind of accurate towards the era, but I, he's an individual character and I don't want to be bound too much by you know, what, what were the standard practices. I'm inventing a character and I'm making him like this um, and hopefully people... Find the character authentic or recognised. I mean, you know, let's not let's not pretend um, that men do not still behave in this way. So, the, yeah, I mean, it should maybe just to explain. Uh, so, the book consists mainly of the five notebooks uh, written by our young uh, narrator, uh, but these are interspersed with five sections, which is kind of my biography of Collins Braithwaite, who mm-hmm. I could have been researching.
2: Let's move on to the unnamed heroine. I thought it's interesting that she calls herself Rebecca, and of course that immediately reminded me of Daphne Du Maurier's novel Rebecca, which I've recently reread, and I think you do refer to it a couple of times. So
3: I do, I do, I do. I, I think she says she chooses the name Rebecca on account of Mrs. Du Maurier's novel. She would always thought mm-hmm. of Rebecca as the most glamorous of names, as uh, she says. So there is a, a an overt reference to um, Rebecca the novel. And I, I I didn't reread the book uh, specifically as research, but I did read I did read it quite recently, and it is a wonderful, wonderful book. you know it's just a brilliant novel. Mm-hmm. and it's quite it's quite long, but it's just like totally compelling. I, I suppose I, I think I also think the Rebecca's a rather glamorous name.
2: Yeah, and the Rebecca that the your character becomes, she's kind of she's glamorous, she's uninhibited, she says what she thinks as opposed to this yes. repressed mousy creature who is
3: That's right, yeah. You, you, hopefully, even in the short extract I read, I mean, and this is the process of writing the character. I don't I'm not a writer who plans things out, so I I find the character in the writing. I remember, you know, beginning to write this section and writing that rather long and convoluted opening sentence. Um, I've decided to write down everything that happens because I feel, I suppose, I may be putting myself in danger. And I wrote a version of that You know, very early in the process. And it was those two words, I suppose, that I felt, ah, I'm here and I'm beginning to find this character. Because even at this very at the very outset of her project, she's doubting herself. She's hedging what she's saying, I suppose. And then even she says a rare occurrence, admittedly. You know, so this is a character full of self doubt and uncertainty. She's not she's not a creature of the sixties. She's a creature of the the forties and fifties. In her sort of social and sexual attitudes, she's mm-hmm. rather she's rather um, repressed. And she has, yeah, she has this sort of schoolgirlish vocabulary, dilly-dally, she says, and again. And so finding her vocabulary was very important to me in, mm. in creating character. But as you say, she, she adopts this persona of Rebecca, and Rebecca allows her to express herself in a different way, to relate to other people in the world in a different way, because she's being someone else. Mm. And, it, you know, very early on, she says, oh, it, it was rather a lark being Rebecca. She finds herself enjoying being Rebecca more than she enjoys being herself.
2: Rebecca is such an asset to her and, and, and so liberating for her, but at the same time, Rebecca is actually dangerous and destructive to an aspect of herself. So you've got these two things balancing. And, you know, Colin's Braithwaite doesn't exactly help. He he sort of blithely says, oh, well, if you're thinking of killing yourself, just do it, but make sure you pay my bills first. And <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think he's got a very dark sense of humour.
2: Um, I was interested in your research, and I, I read somewhere that one of the things you did to research this is you went to the library and you read back copies of the
3: Women's Journal. Well, I mean, without a doubt, that was the most important part of my research. I mean, of course, you can read sort of social histories of the era. You can read bi- biographies. You can read novels, all that. And I did all that stuff. You know, I like to feel um, immersed in the period. And all of that stuff sort of filters in, but rather than read a social history of the period, um, it's always much more useful to try to find primary sources and these back issues of Women's Journal, which was a kind of mid-market women's magazine of the time, the kind of magazine that I felt my character would read. It's actually great fun look, looking through these magazines. Um, but this is where I found the vocabulary for the character because I, I'm reading the short fiction in these magazines. And of course, the short fiction in a 1962 women's magazine is very different from the the sort of canonized um, literature of the period, which tends to reinforce the idea we have of sort of social feminist progress. You get a very different idea of what um, women were being encouraged to aspire to, if you read the short fiction in Women's Journal. But also just the sort of stuff you don't get in social history books is, you know, what was being advertised, the adverts in the magazines, which were for things like central heating. And you're like, central heating is not very glamorous, but it, uh, central heating was uh, important to women because it liberated them from sitting in front of the coal fire every morning, liberated them from sort of domestic drudgery Uh, similarly with products like tin soup, you know, you no longer have to, like, make chicken stock and have it simmering on the hob. You just open a tin when hubby comes home. These little details, I think, you know, all filter into the creation of the character. Not always directly, but I'm trying to understand what the world would have been like for this character. And certainly... Immersing myself in these magazines, you definitely help that process. I mean, of course, it's for people to judge whether they feel that it seems real to them.
2: I do think you you pick out some wonderful details. Like, for example, um, when she goes to see Collins Braithwaite for the first time, she very painstakingly makes holes in her stockings so that he'll yes. think completely nutty because no one yes. in her right mind would ever deliberately make holes in her stockings. <laughs>
3: yeah, as well, she walks to Collins who has his his office in uh, Primrose Hill in London, which, of course, is now a very sort of she um, area of London at that time. It was a bit less so, although it was probably, very, probably quite bohemian. When I was a
2: yeah. kid, it was it was nothing like it was now, you know.
3: But as she's she's walking, she's in preparation for meeting Collins Braceway the first time. She's, of course, put her makeup on and made herself look rather glamorous. And then she realises that she doesn't look at all like a nut in her own words. So she goes to the bathroom of a cafe and tousles her hair and smears her makeup and, as you say, makes a ladder in her stocking too. because what, what woman in her, in her right mind would leave the house in such a way? So, I mean, that's kind of fun, you know, I think, I hope. When you're writing a book and, um, you know, obviously you go through... You know, numerous drafts, and then you you go through the editing process, and you you know this yourself, Jane, and you can get very very fed up with the book towards the end of the process. Yes, I
2: know but, that feeling.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and I know it very well. But um, with this book, you know, even in the latter stages of the editing process, I still find it quite funny, and uh, I, I think. I mean, it's not. I, I don't think I've been known for writing. You've mentioned his bloody project. It's not the funniest book in the world.
2: But this uh, does have its funny moments, and and this is. I I, I was laughing out loud at this book.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's. I think because my character doesn't fit in with the world that she she exists in, and she has this rather outdated vocabulary, and she's she's a terrible snob. You know, I think there's humour to be had in, in that that sort of conflict of her, her vocabulary in the world. In fact, just thinking about it, it's, it, weirdly, I mean, I always find that George Orwell is a tremendously funny writer, a great mm-hmm. comic writer, not something he's known. I think because it comes from the observation of people's idiosyncrasies. And I, I think uh, Keep the Aspen Distro Flying is a very, very funny novel. But weirdly, a book that I remember finding very funny is uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, um, which oh, is his yeah. a book of journalism, really. Um, but what, what's funny about it is Orwell, of course, was an old Etonian, and he employs this old Etonian vocabulary when he's in Wigan. And that, that <laughs> conflict, because Orwell's favourite word is beastly. And beastly sort of puffy nosed words. So when he's in uh, Wigan, you know, lying in the sort, of, sort of flea-ridden bunk and he describes it as beastly, there's just this conflict between the vocabulary and what he's describing. And I think that produces humour. I think that conflict of counterculture and the, the sort of, deli dally clots, nennies, vocabulary of my characters. Yeah, producing. and
2: it was a strange yeah. era because it was it was very, you know, there was all that sexual liberation and so on, but it was still very puritanical and repressive in lots of ways and the liberation itself could be exploitative, as you said. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, Graham, is um, we're, we're looking at all these different cells, the whole idea of the divided self in this book, and I thought, well, a novelist is a divided self too, isn't he? Because when he's writing, he's inventing characters and writing from inside their heads. So do you find when you're writing, do you lose yourself in all these different characters that you're creating? Is that, is that a thing that happens?
3: Such a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Collins Braithwaite would have great fun with the, with the phrase, lose yourself. In fact, in the book, he does. I suppose I do attempt to lose myself in the sense that, you know, in this process that I'm going through of trying to create this character, my central character, and I would say the same thing about Roddy McRae and and his bloody project, is that I'm, I'm very much trying to see the world from their point of view and I'm writing their account from inside and I'm not standing outside in judgment. So... This is why, you know, at the end of his bloody project, there's no authorial stance on, was Roddy McRae insane or sane? What was his motivation? I, I, as the author, don't make a judgment about it. That's my, I suppose, my, my kind of mantra to myself, is to not judge the character, to allow the reader to make his or her own judgment about the character. So am I losing myself? I suppose I'm attempting to not stand outside in judgment as myself, but to be, insofar as you can, be, be the character, see the world from their point of view. So there's a yeah, there's an aspect of that. I mean, what's you know, what's also interesting, you know, this is my fourth novel, and on the surface, you know, the my novels are quite different. The characters are the most important things in any book. In any of my books, for me, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I I love to write character. I feel that's my strength as a writer. I um, mean, you know, the characters seem very different, and yet um, they they all have similar characteristics. So while you're trying to lose yourself, you you realise that you can't escape yourself, and <laughs> um, because the, you you return again and again to these uh these same traits, um and same sort of behaviours and uh e- and so even. You know, my character, our young woman in this book, is somewhat similar to Manfred Bauman, who is the central character of my first novel and who, you know, I, I would say is my most autobiographical character. So they, they share traits. So, yes, I'm trying to lose myself, but maybe I can't. I very much believe in that, that you have to learn the craft of writing. And, um, you know, there are certain writers like like Orwell, like George Simonon, like Edna O'Brien, numerous, numerous writers, of course, who I feel I've learned the craft from. And Simonon is a writer of great economy. He wrote over 200 novels in his own name, but he writes very economically with a great eye for detail. And, you know, you always feel reading Simonon that he has stood in that bar and he saw that character on the other side of the bar and that uh, his writing has that feeling of it, it comes from life. And again, in terms of research, you know, I, I go out and I, you know, when I'm writing these French books, I go and sit in cafes in France and, you know, I put my phone away, which is a rare occurrence these days. And yeah. you know, for, for people, but I think, you know, we are so, we become so uncomfortable just sitting, uh, we we we're always looking at our phones or whatever, and it it takes an effort of will to actually observe the world around us. And when you do it, you know you can. There's always, I mean, there's even a there's even a, a line in the book about tiny dramas unfold all around us. You see it in Seamanov. The the opening of page of Down and Out in Paris and London, Orwell's great book. It, you know it begins. Orwell looks out of the window of his hotel. And he tells us what is happening in the street below. And you, you read it. And it's an, it's an amazing, beautiful page of prose. You read it and you think, this is what he's doing. He is looking out of his window and writing down what he sees. You think, how simple? Mm-hmm. How simple? This is what to do. Of course, it's actually very difficult to do that. But it's a great starting point, I think. And, uh, you know, this is something that I have tried to learn. And, you know, of course, we are, I'm learning my craft all the time. Sure. Um, and, you know, before this book, I walked the streets of Primrose Hill many times. Braithwaite comes from Darlington. I went to Darlington and stayed in an extremely cheap um, guest house where the shower didn't work. Somewhere that like George Orwell might have written about. You know, and I walked the streets. I'm trying to find the, street, the exact streets where um, Braithwaite was brought up. You know, and, and nearby I found a little sort of brook. And I got a letter yesterday, an email yesterday from somebody from Darlington saying, "How do you know so much about Darlington?" <laughs> um, because I went there and I found the details. And for most readers, it won't matter. But you know, somebody who's from Darlington goes, "Oh my God, he knows about Cocker Beck. I used to go there as a kid." Yeah, you know, I think detail is really, really important. And even if yeah. uh, for the most readers don't know the detail about Darlington but you have the feeling of authenticity. And as a novelist, as you know, what you're trying to create is a world that feels authentic, that feels real.
2: Can I ask you a career question? Uh, what difference did the uh, getting shortlisted for the booker make to you?
3: Uh, it changed my life completely. I mean, it changed my life as a, as a writer. It didn't change my writing practice in any way, but His Bloody Project had sold less than a thousand copies. I was working as a painter and decorator to make money to write, which was fine, but you know, not re- I was certainly wasn't anywhere close to making a living as a writer. And then suddenly when you're on the long list for the Booker Prize, it, it shines a spotlight on your book. It doesn't translate into automatic sales of, of the numbers that people often think. But what it does do is people uh, like text publishing go, oh, I wonder who's on the Booker shortlist if like me, you weren't an author with a large number of sort of foreign deals, then people take an interest in your book, and uh, sometimes make an offer for it. And, you know, it transformed my fortunes, both in terms of sales here in the UK, but also, and equally importantly, and amazingly, being published abroad. And so then, you know, I'm able to, you know, sustain myself as a writer. You know, I get invited to Adelaide and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I did, did an event with uh, the local hero, Hannah Kent. So, you know, incredible experiences I've had because of the book and I've travelled a lot. Um, my book has taken me around the world. It's incredible. One of the
2: people in the audience is, is just saying, "What your, what's your next book
3: about? Well, my next book is going to be, the I mentioned my two French novels. Um, the object is to finish the trilogy. So that's my next project. And then I have... I have a big project in mind, my big book. Um, so that's going to take me five years or something, probably.
2: Well, I hope yeah. when we can start to travel around the world again. I hope you'll come back and see us again. But uh, I just wanted to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've loved yeah. your two books, and I'm going to read the detective novels next. And I've also just read your short story, The Wolverine um,
3: Story. Oh, all right. Yeah, I was on Radio, radio 4. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, writing that. Another case study.
2: Yeah, yeah, obviously you're on a roll with this this psychiatry thing.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's endless fun, you know, endless material. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, and very, very twisty and tricky. And, and uh, um, I do recommend the case study to everyone watching. It's a fantastic book, and I love reading it.
3: Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jane. Um, I mean, I feel like we could talk for much longer. And uh, oh, um, yeah, yeah. apologies if there are questions. If anybody has a question um, just to the hosts that they want to put to me, um, put it through to me by email or something. I'll do my best to answer.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Graham. Yeah. We could talk all night. There are so many questions. But that was fantastic. Thank you so much. That was a really wonderful conversation. I'd just like to congratulate you on the book, Graham. If you don't have a copy yet, if you, don't, if you need your second and your third copy, we are getting towards Christmas. So <laughs> get it from Readings. You can get it from any bookshop. That's fine. But if you like, readings.com.au. Case study, that'll get you there. So on behalf of Readings and Text I want to thank you Jane and Graham for a fantastic conversation and being here tonight and for you know persisting with our exciting split personality which may be divided self divided zoom kind of experience. <laughs> so thank you for that thank you everyone else. Congratulations <laughs> on the book, congratulations on future events. We hope to see you back in Australia physically in person at some point when we all can move about the world again but thank you everyone thank you tonight
0: you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast on our website we'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations with plenty of great books, music, film and TV you can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter the readings monthly production for this podcast was by me Nico Calico. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, and that sovereignty was never ceded.